State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. For the next two weeks, we will be diving into the language of coaching with the one and only Nick Winkleman. Now, I've been looking forward to this discussion for a long time. In fact, I've been following Nick's work since he was back at Athletes Performance. And every single time I either watched a video of his, read an article, or heard him speak at a conference, I was always fascinated with the mental side of coaching. I always wondered, why does a cue work with one client or athlete, but not the next? And why do some cues help us translate a skill learned in training to the game environment, but some cues don't even allow us to make it stick for the next rep, set, or training session? Well, within this episode, Nick shed some light into why this is and how we can better understand the language of coaching to help ensure that our clients and athletes understand us. For those who maybe don't know Nick, Nick is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. Prior to this, Nick was the director of education for EXOS, formerly Athletes Performance. And as a performance coach, Nick oversaw the speed and assessment component of the EXOS NFL Combine Development Program. Nick has also supported many athletes in the NFL, NBA, MLB, national sports organizations, and military. Nick is an internationally recognized speaker on human performance and coaching science and has multiple publications through the UKSCA, the NSCA, and Idea Health and Fitness. Now, I've rambled for long enough, so sit back, relax, and I will see you on the other side. Welcome, Nick, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you? I'm great, Adam. Pleasure to be on. Awesome. It's great to have you on. Uh, I know I've been following your work uh, way back from when you were at Athletes Performance, now Exos. And I remember early on in my career watching videos of you on YouTube and <laughs> hearing about what you were doing down there with regards to the football training you were doing. And I was doing a lot of football training at the time up here in Canada. And just the way that you're coaching and the way that you're always that, that Exos brand, the athletes performance brand. Now Exos was always pushing the mold and really trying to find new ways. And they were really into the integration of different areas from nutrition to training, to the therapy and rehabilitation side of things. And it was just a, a massive eye opener for me. 
and you in particular, because you were on a lot of the videos there, uh, you were a huge influence on kind of me and my early career. So it's an honor to have you on and actually finally get to chat with you a little bit. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that, Adam. I mean, I, I've been able to extend those same thanks to so many people in our industry. I know exactly, uh, and I still feel that way with many individuals, being able to watch and, and learn from others. And I think ultimately it is about paying it forward and helping the next generation continue to get better in a relative sense quicker than when you were at their same level. And so it's always an honor to be on and very happy uh, any positive influence I might've had on your career. Yeah. So how did you, if you can just walk the listeners a bit through kind of your background, so how you got to where you were even at Athletes Performance and then your process, your career to now uh, being in Ireland and working with uh, the rugby team there. Can you yeah. just walk us through that, that process a little bit? Yeah, so there, there's a, a very long version of this and kind of a shorter, so I'll try to find some happy middle here. Uh, basically for me, I've, I've always worked in a strength and conditioning fitness type capacity. I mean, my very first job, at 15, was a weight room attendant, helping individuals, you know, not drop weights on their feet, get a decent program. And so for me, it was always an interest, you know, likely because my dad was into it, my grandfather was into it. But fortunately, at the high school I went to, we had a strength and conditioning coach there who every day at, you know, 233 would open up the gym and would have the same program, you know, Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Friday on the wall. We did the same program for four years, exponentially got better. But what, what he did, his name was Rudy, funny mm -hmm. enough, so kind of had that mindset piece to his demeanor. He, he taught me at first just implicitly because I was too young to recognize what he was doing, that being a great strength coach is far more than reps and sets. It's about mm -hmm. developing the person right alongside the program and ultimately it's what you get out of that person first that really ultimately determines what they can then themselves get out of the program and so I had an unbelievable role model uh, both experientially and what a great strength coach looks like and thus he kind of formed in my mind you know what someone in this area looks like when they're doing it at the highest level even though he didn't have necessarily the degrees or the certifications, just self-taught by all accounts. And so that spurred on me to, to go into college and get an exercise science degree. At first, I thought I was actually going to be pre-med. But when I went through some in-house personal training certification courses and started to become a personal trainer alongside the degree, I fell in love with it. And, you know, I not only enjoyed coaching individuals, but I enjoyed coaching coaches. There inevitably was this in-house cert program that I was teaching for the last couple of years that I was there. So before I even joined athletes performance, I was guiding other coaches through a process of how to become a, a personal trainer and a strength coach, you know? So then 2006, I got the opportunity to go to athletes performance. And I, I typically leave this part out when I share this story, but what I, what's interesting about me going to athletes performance is my mentor uh, at Oregon state university, his name is Guido van Reisigen and Guido's unique in that he, he came over to the United States from Belgium and he wanted to work in professional baseball, which mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the most common you know, craft that someone from Belgium would want to get into. Yeah. But he did and inevitably spent something like 15 years in professional ball. And so 
So he met Mark Verstegen when Mark was still at the Voluntary Institute and IPI in Bradenton, Florida. So he, he knew him. And so now this guy, fast forward 15 years in Major League Baseball, is now working in the backroom corner of the rec center at Oregon State University. He just made the life decision that he wanted to calm everything down and focus on his family and his craft. Mm -hmm. So here he is, and I'll never forget, I must have been 19 or 20, he pulls out this pamphlet of this mean-looking dude with a flat haircut, and it's Mark <laughs> Verstegen on the front. And for those of you that know Mark, and, and I love him to death, that's exactly what he looks like, militant as anything. He pulls this pamphlet out. He says, listen, man, if you want to really be the best you can in strength conditioning one day, this is the guy you got to work with. He's doing stuff that nobody else is doing. Mm -hmm. And so, really, I spent the better part of my three out of my four years in college thinking about how I'm going to get an internship there Yeah. to the degree that, like you couldn't go on the internet at the time and just find these. So I actually flew to Phoenix, cold called athletes performance, got a tour, left my CV and two weeks later, an internship was offered. Like, so that's, it's kind of a cool story, but it just reinforces to people. If you want something, go out and get it, yeah. literally fly there and go out and get it. And that was part of my journey. And so 2006 turned into 2016, 10 years uh, at Athletes Performance, you know, learning all along the way, primarily as a strength coach, NFL combine, military, and every other kind of athlete we have there. But at the same time, I kept doing the coach, the coach thing. And, and all the while, I just developed this rich passion for how to be a better coach. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that resonated from when I was in college and still resonates in me today. Uh, 2016 then led to a jump off point. I was just finishing up a PhD in motor learning. I felt that I had learned as much as I could in that context. And I wanted to challenge myself again. And so looked all over the world. I knew I wanted to leave the United States to go to a new sport mm. and a new country. Yeah. You know, if you really want to change, you have to have change imposed on you many, many times. And so uh, the opportunity came to join Irish Rugby as the head of athletic performance and science. And so now I've been here for it'll be five years in March. And basically the way it works is I work technically for the national governing body, right? The national team. Mm -hmm. But then we have four professional rugby teams that, that feed into that and, and play in their own professional leagues, no different than the NFL, for example. And so yeah. my job is to sort of be, so to speak, the glue that connects those pro professional provincial teams to the national team. And so I get to work out of with some amazing people across therapy, sports, science, strength, conditioning in a different culture, in a different sport. And yeah. the last five years have just been unbelievable learnings personally and professionally. And again, have reminded me why, how we coach, how we communicate, how we build bridges between us and others is really the rate limiter in life and most certainly in coaching. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I know I've only been over to Europe once in my life and it was uh, more of a stop tour at all these different cities. So we yeah. did Dublin, we did uh, Glasgow because I had a friend who I was training at the time who played for the Rangers. So I got to see a Glasgow Rangers game, uh, did a whole bunch of other like Edinburgh, London and Amsterdam. So just kind of hopped around a couple days at each Lucky enough, I had a friend who was living in Dublin at the time. And so we actually stayed at her house. She was doing her mes medical residency in there. Hey. And we actually, she got us to a game 
to go and see a rugby game at the Aviva Center. And it was phenomenal. Like it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. So I know the culture of rugby over there um, in, in Ireland specifically. And so that's just kind of a cool story about what you're currently doing and uh, kind of a link there. When oh. played well, it's an unbelievable sport. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and the stadium was was phenomenal. Like it's a, it's a huge stadium. So I I want to touch a little bit on your experience uh, from Exos and athletes' performance, and it's it's a question that I've kind of been thinking of a little bit over the past several months as, I, as I've talked to some people and heard some other people speak who have all worked at athletes performance and are all very successful in what they do. And so I wanted to find, because I, I actually met Mark Verstegen when I was at a perform better conference in uh, long beach, California, it'll be last year. And it was the first time I'd ever met him before. He hadn't been at any of the other, other conferences I'd ever went to. I've only ever been to two perform betters. But I'd been down to Athletes Performance. He wasn't there when I went. And I just did a tour much like you did, walked around. I think I did a, a small class with them. And uh, I've always wanted to talk to him because I bought his core performance book. And so I yeah. stopped and chatted with him a little bit. And uh, yeah, super down to earth guy. But you are right. When you look at his picture on the front of that book, even, right? He looks like that militant, like somebody you... Yeah, yeah, he's an intimidating figure for sure. Yeah, like you walk past him on the street, and you're like, I don't know if I I will talk to him, but he's he's always smiling too. Like in real person, he's he's always smiling. So I just wanted to ask you because athletes performance in Exos has brought about some of the top minds in the industry, the people that I at least I see, and I be this may be almost a confirmation bias because I'm looking for things sure, going sure. to perform better. And a lot of uh, like, I know you yourself, you speak there, Brandon Marcello speaks there. Uh, Sue Felsone, like uh, Michelle Rodriguez, like you all speak there and it's just listening to how you speak and the, the level to which you all have gotten to in your own respective fields and all kind of in different directions, right? Sure, sure. Uh, with different uh, avenues. But what was it about athletes performance and exos that has allowed all of you to, while staying almost in your own lanes, be able to get to the heights that you have, have found? Great, great question. And as we talked about before we jumped on, you said you might have some new ones. I've never been asked that question outright, uh, but it's one that I've reflected on many times. And so, you know, I can, I can attempt to speak for my, you know, past colleagues and even I consider in many cases current colleagues, you know, that, that's one just anecdote. When you talk to people, if they've worked at Exos, for a certain length of time, you know, I would say if you've, if you've worked there for, let's say, at least six years, but most of the people we're talking about, it's probably been eight to 10 years that they were there before they left, myself included, it, you, you always feel like you're part of Exos. It's like you've left your alma mater, mm-hmm. you know, I, just as I'm, you know, I'm always going to be part of Oregon State University, I feel like I'll always be part of, of Team Exos, as, as it is now known. And I think there implies some of the, the strength and, if you want to call it, the formula 
that, that leads to what you have observed in terms of so much talent coming out of that location. And, and most certainly it's not by chance. And so let's just use me because I can only speak for me as a use case. Mm -hmm. And maybe we start to reveal commonalities with others. The first thing is this, when I found out, as I've already shared about athletes performance, as it was called on the time, I was told from my mentor that Mark Verstegen is a standards guy. He's a tough guy. He is going to expect that you expect mm -hmm. to get the best out of yourself, right? Yeah. So it's not that he's, he's not going to come over and tell you, right, to be the best. No, that is an expectation when you walk in the door. And so if you want to get a job there, there is that expectation that you will hold yourself to the highest standard, that you will pursue the highest capability of whatever it is you are pursuing, right? And that is almost implied as you walk in the door. And people get found out very quickly because the people that walk in there, they're not creative. I think they already have something. You know, it, it's kind of like flies to a light. There's something about athletes' performance that was a beacon for a certain type of individual. And that certain type of individual had, I would say, the following characteristics. One, you can't have an ego. Mm -hmm. Like literally when, you, when I walked in there, the amount of talent from both an athlete and a coaching perspective is absolutely breathtaking. I mean, the coaches I worked with, Luke Richardson, Daryl Eto, Joe Gomes, Ken Cronin, Sue Falcone, Darcy Norman, all of them, all of them have gone on to have successful careers in professional sports, many of them successful careers in multiple professional sports. And so these were the kind of individuals that you're around. And so when I got hired for the gig around five months into my internship, these people were now my peers. Mm -hmm. And so ego is almost forced upon you if you don't have it. Yeah. And so that's one key feature. The second feature is you have to have this endless thirst to get better. For one, there are so many people around you that are just wealth of knowledge that you can access all of this all the time. But obviously you need to be open and ready to take that information on. And the interesting thing is you would see these role models, Adam, who already are what I perceived as the top of their game. And yet I see them reading articles, talking to each other, reading books, going to conferences. They're still accelerating their own development despite me looking at them and almost feeling like they've already made it. If I mm -hmm. could just get to their level, I would be happy. And so there's no ego, tremendous growth mindset, unbelievable role modeling of what it means to truly pursue the best. From there then, there was this really interesting statement Verstegen would always say. He's like, I do not want people that are willing. I want people that are eager. He would say it again and again and again. That means it's not just enough to be willing to do the work. He wants to see people that are proactively pursuing it at every level. Are you picking up that little piece of garbage? Are you reorganizing the weight stack if you know it's, if it's um, out of whack? Are you stepping in, getting in where needed, independent of your level? Can you flatten the curve? Can you flatten the hierarchy? 
And so he lived those values and expected it of others. And so I think with all of that in, we're talking about values, we're talking about character. That was the echo, the heartbeat of the place. And ultimately, it would be uncomfortable, Adam. It would be fundamentally uncomfortable if you either don't have those attributes or weren't willing, eager to go develop those attributes. And if we then look at those attributes, they create the basis for someone that learns how to learn and someone that will continue to pursue the best version of themselves. And what I believe you're seeing is people, after they go through a period of incubation at Exos, Mm -hmm. they come ready formed into the world because they have developed in dog years. Stegen would say this, if you are here, you will develop in dog years. You will get more out of one year here if you are eager than most will out of seven years. And so having done it for 10 years, I can say that that absolutely was the case. And so if you didn't have the work ethic, if you didn't have the stomach for it, you were going to be found out real quick. But you know what? The people that inevitably got offered a job, that's what Verstegen was brilliant and still brilliant at, is getting the right people on the bus. Rarely did I see people leave early. I see people go through that incubation period, give and get everything they can, and then go on. But the reason I believe Exos is so successful is because when those people leave, they still have a piece of Exos within them. And the world, hence your question, sees them forever bound to this Exos family. And thus Exos is more than a bricks and mortar. It's more than a place. It's a fundamental idea about what it means to be great at what you do, specific in this case to human performance. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think the... uh... The brand, uh, Mark Verstegen, and anybody who's ever come out of there, as you mentioned, has absolutely had an impact on many, many trainers, strength and conditioning coaches, not only in North America, but around the world, because all of you speak all over the world all the time. And so I want to get into a little bit more about what you specifically have uh, focused on over the past several years, and you just finished writing a book, The uh, the Language of Coaching. And I wanted to just dive into coaching a little bit because I'm, I'm very intrigued by not only the research behind it, but your anecdotal evidence that you've seen, as you said, not only in Exos um, and with previous coaches that you've had, but also now working in uh, with Irish rugby. So can you talk a little bit about the research that you did? And like, I guess, starting a little bit more in your PhD and kind of how that's expanded to uh, what you're doing now in the writing of the book. Yeah, for sure. So as you know, just to put a little bit of start with the end in mind, you know, the book is called The Language of Coaching, and that's exactly what it is about. It's about, it's about how we as coaches use language as one means to influence the way our athletes or clients focus, recognizing that how we focus, for better or for worse, has a large impact on not only immediate performance, but the thing we're really chasing, which is long-term movement learning. And so for me, the experience that really started to groove that idea 
came in college where when I was going through that personal training certification course, uh, I met another mentor who was just a, a fabulous personal trainer. You know, he was uh, one of those individuals that it specifically, if you were a bodybuilder or you were training from a high performance perspective, he was the individual that people recommended. And so I said, listen, if he's the best of the bunch, he's the one I'm going to follow yeah. and learn from. And so John was his name. And so I'd follow John and I tried to ascertain why is he so much better than everybody else? Or why is he at least perceived as being better than everybody else? And very quickly, I started to realize, well, gosh, he still bench presses on Monday. He still does biceps and triceps and everything else. There's <laughs> nothing really in his program that I would say separates him from others. But obviously, there, there's some X factor there. And what ultimately revealed itself to me by chance or choice, I do not know, is his language, his communication. You know, at a broad level, just psychologically, he made people feel remarkably confident in what they were doing. And he scaffolded really strong belief in the program itself. You know, we, we typically conventionally call that buy-in. But the other thing that he was quite unique at doing, Adam, is is cueing. He was very precise with the words he would select right before they would move. And interestingly enough, he worked with a lot of bodybuilders. And so a lot of bodybuilders would be looking to gain lean mass in troublesome areas, you know, the mm -hmm. posterior delts or the lower lat or the lower trap. And so what he was unbelievably gifted at doing is to set some kind of a focus that allowed them to go through the motion in such a way to get this heightened, wide-eyed activation of these areas. And literally, I watched him do it again and again. People would get out of a set with like just the barbell, yeah. and they would be absolutely screaming in pain with the pump, and just part of them in absolute joy, like, I've never been able to feel that before. And I cannot tell you how many times this guy heard that. And so this was the first moment where I recognized that what we say matters a mm -hmm. lot. And so I parked that idea and that idea started to bubble back up when I took over the NFL combine program at, at Exos. And that was around 2009. So I'd been there for three years at the time. And, you know, my first year running the program, I, I was running the program with incredible discipline and timekeeping and my coaching was on point. If you had recorded what I was saying, Adam, you really couldn't fault me for any of it. My, my understanding of biomechanics was on point. It was all there, but I had this kind of epiphany, like quite literally an epiphany. It was a Monday morning. It was cold. It was in January. We were doing this acceleration prep session. Mm -hmm. And I just had this realization where I, I stepped out of my body as if I was watching myself coach. And I realized that, that I was just like this automaton, one-way vocal streak, that I'm just pushing out all these cues and all this content, get tall, push off the ground, high knees. And I'm feeling myself. I'm, I'm happy with all the, the, the verbiage I'm spewing. <laughs> and the interns can't write fast enough, carpal tunnel. But I'm like, holy smokes. You know, these cues are just bouncing off into the ether. Who are they directed at? Am I just trying to be background music in a gym or am I actually trying to make a difference? Mm -hmm. And so as this kind of aha moment hit me, I didn't know exactly what to do with it. 
And so I continued to coach the only way I knew how throughout that first year. And the guys went to the NFL Combine and they performed, they performed well, but by my estimates, not nearly as well as I thought they should have. And so I, it was as if they had lost some baggage on their way from Phoenix to Indianapolis, right? They had lost some of their performance along the way. And I'm like, what's going on? But as coaches, how often can we relate to that? Yeah. Right. Where someone performs really well during the week, but doesn't quite bring that same level to the weekend or athletes say things to us like, I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. Or the athlete where you have to keep reminding them of the cue. And if you don't remind them of the cue, everything falls apart. And so I started to catalog all of these examples where you thought your coaching was working, but then you get evidence that it didn't stick. Yeah. And if you use John Wooden's quote as, as a North Star, I have not taught until they have learned, or I have not coached until they have learned, that suggests that to qualify what you've done as teaching or coaching, there needs to be the output of learning. And what is learning? Well, learning is the ability of the athlete or client to express that improvement Mm -hmm. without the need of any kind of reminder because they own the improvement. They have taken it on board. And so as I started to catalog all of these examples of words not working, or only working when I'm reminding the person, I said, okay, this is going to be my my source of inquiry. I'm going to put all my curiosity at this idea around language, harking back to that college experience of the person and already recognizing how important words are. And so that that spurred me to, to ask a really simple question. What do I do? Like literally, what do I do? Well, I'm a teacher. I'm teaching something. The athlete, they're kind of like the student. You know, they're learning something. And what's our subject matter? Our subject matter is movement. Well, once you put that kind of phrasing around what you do in this industry, you quickly realize that textbooks or information on motor learning, skill acquisition, expertise, right? Psychology, educational psychology, to be specific you start to see that these domains are rich in what I call how to coach, less so what to coach. All I had ever studied was what to coach, the biomechanics, the kinesiology, periodization. But I had spent very little time on the how to coach. And let's be honest, when you ask mentors, which I did, how have you become so good at coaching? They just say things like practice, trial and error, talk to other coaches. Now, Am I being flippant in suggesting that those are not valuable ways to get better as a coach? No, not at all. Those are critical ways to get better as a coach. But, but, it's a big but, you can get a force multiplier on how much you get out of those experiences when you understand the science of coaching, the Mm -hmm. principles of coaching, and have a vocabulary so you know what these things are that relate to coaching. What's the name? And once I have the name, I can seek to get better at this thing. And so fast forward, I dove in to the long words. I dove in to all the research that very few people want to spend time with. And I started to reap the rewards almost immediately. I realized that how much we say matters, 
-hmm. What we say matters. How we say it, tone and body language matters. How we involve the athlete in creating the ideas that go into their head and guide their movement matters. And so all of these things had nothing to do with reps and sets and everything to do with how we actually go about coaching them. Yeah. And so as I studied this, as I, as I did at the time, because I'm a coach educator, I started to present on it. And inevitably, as I started to reap the rewards, but yet I sought nowhere to be found in our industry in a meaningful sense, I said, listen, I'm going to go get a PhD on this. Not because I want to be an academic, but because if I'm truly going to be an advocate for this space, as I was taught at Exos, I need to leave no stone unturned. And so I knew I had the practical world, but I also wanted the academic rigor so I could scaffold and bring systems to bear that made it accessible. Because that mm. was the big issue, Adam. It wasn't accessible. Yeah. And fast forward then, we get to 2016. The book still hadn't been written by anybody else. <laughs> At this point, I put in over a decade of studying, reading, applying, learning, failing. I said, I'm going to write the book. Mm -hmm. And so that brings us to 2020 and the language of coaching is born. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how often uh, something that you struck me, something you said struck me and how often that we coach. And as you said, we don't know what's not working with regards to our cues. We just, we are trying to like, it's like throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? We're just verbal, just diarrhea, just trying to get as much out as many cues. Uh, one of the things that I've always told new trainers, new strength coaches is fewer, like fewer words, stop coaching too much, uh, like stay positive with your cues. Because a lot of people are like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. And then people are like, so what, wait, what am I doing? There's so much information there that you're like, I'm not quite sure now what I'm supposed to do. So yeah, I definitely see that in the coaching world, there has been, as you said, such a huge focus on the biomechanics, the periodization, the programming, the uh, all those different pieces to training, just very little on the actual coaching side of things outside of, okay, you need to give cues. And, you know, if you want the hips to go lower, you tell them to put their hips. If you want them to squeeze their glutes, squeeze their glutes. And so we'll get into that a little bit in a little bit with regards to internal, external cueing. But I also wanted to just kind of, you, you brought up something very interesting. So I, I just added it to my, my list here. You, you mentioned principles, like when you started to kind of figure out the principles of coaching. So can you just discuss what your principles to coaching would be if you were to teach a strength coach or a personal trainer? There's, there, there's a lot. And I, and I think what we have to do is we have to, you know, do what the mind is very good at and, and lay down a few categories. And for the purpose of this discussion, identify which categories we might discuss some principles and which categories we will leave. So, you know, categorically, I think we can do two broad ones here. We've already shared this. There's, there's what I'm coaching. And then there is how I'm coaching. You know, so what I am coaching might be sprinting or a back squat or an Olympic lift. And in that what, there is my knowledge of the biomechanics. There's my knowledge of the physiology and everything that goes into performing it. But all of that knowledge exists in my mind. 
It exists in this black box, so to speak. And my job is not done in having the knowledge of what to do across movement and the programming forward. I then have to take another step, right, for that information to be realized mm -hmm. in the real world. And that is I have to communicate it to another individual I, or I have to facilitate them understanding it in some way, whether it be verbal or nonverbal, right? And so that's where, so to speak, I draw this line between what we're coaching and then how we are coaching it. And so what we'll do for the nature of this conversation is focus on category two, the how of coaching. When we talk about the how of coaching, we first need to have a, a common outcome that we are going to judge our how to coach methods by, okay? If I don't have an outcome, how do I judge the efficacy of what I am doing, mm -hmm. right? And so the outcome uh, principally here is the most important word. It's the word we've been talking about. It's learning. And so I am judging myself. I am assessing myself by my ability to have a given coaching method lead to my athlete learning what it is I intend them to learn. And notably in our case here, it is the expression of movement mm -hmm. in some improved capacity. That capacity could be the expression of something like strength and power. It could be the efficiency of something such as their coordination. It could be the efficiency in a context, i.e. decision-making. You know, can I sidestep someone and go into space? But either way, there is some learning outcome that we seek. And we want to see that the athlete is able to express that without any reminders, mm -hmm. without any need for additional follow-up. Now, that's not to say there isn't feedback and follow-up in a learning process. Surely there is. But the ultimate North Star is, can I, through the length of my process, however long it is, get to the outcome where they own the change I observed and intended in my mind, mm -hmm. right? So now we have that. The question then becomes principally, how do I guide someone to learn a given activity for which I have all the necessary knowledge of? Well, when we look at this, we start to get into how people move and how people go about controlling their movement. And ultimately, when we look at this, we have two primary methods, call it two principal methods we can use as a coach to guide movement learning, motor learning. We have verbal and nonverbal. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And so let me put some defense around how we can get it to be that simple with is the following that when individuals, when individuals enter this world, they come armed, they come armed with the perceptual tools, the sensory tools to learn, right? So it's not that coaches, right, are necessary. People can learn and they do learn on their own. And so if we study how people learn on their own, we can then start to better understand where coaches need to inject themselves. Mm. And so this is where it's useful to talk about children. And so I have two children and they learned fine on their own to crawl, stand, walk, run, 
ride a bike, skip rope, right? We even have a gymnastics bar downstairs. They're teaching themselves all nice. sorts of tricks yeah. and they take no augmented coaching. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that there's something about this relationship between the perceiver, right? The athlete, the person doing the learning and what is being perceived, the mm -hmm. physical environment. And so what are you talking about, Nick? Okay, well, when you see a chair and you notice that you are tired, that chair in its physical form creates an affordance for you to sit. So think about it. In that moment, the chair coached you how to sit, <laughs> literally. Mm -hmm. Okay, now take stairs. You're on the bottom floor. The movement goal you have is to be on the top floor. The stairs have literally taught you how to navigate them such that you achieve that end state, that end goal. When you get on a bike, if I'm learning to ride a bike for the first time, gravity against the minimal, the minimal surface area that is the two wheels sagittally oriented creates this environmental pairing that when I'm about to fall, I know it. And thus the bike teaches me how to ride it. The skipping rope, when it's not traveling around my body, is evidence that it's not traveling around my body. Mm -hmm. So the skipping rope teaches me how to skip rope. And so why do I share this? We come into this world, there are already two coaches. There's already two coaches. There's the perceiver, it's me and my apparatus to sense the world around me. And there's the world that I am literally sensing. And the design of this world will dictate, will inform how I interact with it. The shape of this glass, I know everyone's listening, I'm yeah. holding a glass. The shape of this glass dictates the position my hand needs to be in to grasp it. And so do you know how we oftentimes say, do you grasp that idea? Ah, yeah. we use this metaphor grasping of an idea because it relates to how we literally grip, grasp, and understand the world around us. And so what this is demonstrating, Adam, is that there are two primary variables at play. There's what's going on in the athlete's head as the perceptual apparatus, and there's what's going on in the environment. Mm -hmm. Now, that's getting us closer. That's getting us closer to recognizing how do we influence learning. Hopefully, it's already intuitive. If there's two variables, can I, as an external source of information, i.e. as a coach, can I impact those? Well, can I do something to the environment? Could I put a mini band around the knees? Sure, I could. Mm -hmm. Could I give someone a cue? Hey, I want you to keep your knees straight ahead as if you're shooting lasers at the mirror. Sure, I could. So I could change the perceiver and the way they think about perceiving the world just as equally I can manipulate the environment they're perceiving. Let's hold on to that for a moment. The question then that we need to ask is this. If, if movement and learning is co-created, this is such an important word. If, if movement and learning, it's co-created. You cannot have one without the other. You need the perceiver, that's the person, and you need what's being perceived, that's the environment. They work together like a dance to create what we see as movement. What binds them together? This is now we're getting into say, what binds them together? Well, ultimately what binds them together is the individual's perception. That's why I'm saying perceiver and perceived. 
But let's use a word that people are more familiar with. And that is, it's the way the person pays attention, right? I just put a post on Twitter earlier today. I cannot move around a defender I have not seen. I cannot hit a baseball that I have not watched. Do we understand this, right? Mm -hmm. So if I don't actively sense my environment, I can't move in terms of it. And so if I'm not, let's if I'm riding a bike and my handlebars are all over the place and I keep falling off the bike, yet for whatever reason, none of my soft attention is on those handlebars. I'm not able to access the information needed to solve the movement problem. And so ultimately, the way I pay attention to the environment binds me to that environment. Mm -hmm. And it binds me to the information in that environment that I will use to navigate it. So for example, have you ever been walking down the street and tripped on a curb, right? Mm -hmm. Why did you trip? You didn't have, you failed to deploy a movement solution. Why? Because you did not perceive the actual elevation of the tile on the ground, maybe because it was dark. If we do not perceive it, we cannot respond to it. This is a fundamental feature of the human condition mm -hmm. and movement in general. So let's start to connect this whole thing together. If attention is what is battery powering, which it is our perception of the world, then attention ultimately dictates step-by-step step, our pathway to learning. I cannot step into the space around a defender I do not see. I cannot hit the ball I do not watch. So I only learn from the things I pay attention to, from the things I can actively perceive, right? Mm -hmm. So attention is the currency of learning. Okay, so then as a coach, what am I asking myself? If I see that my athlete in the environment in their co-creation are not making the change we desire. I'm not getting enough hip extension and power in my sprint. I'm not getting enough depth in my squat, whatever it is. The way the athlete and the environment are working together, you as a coach outline as not good enough. Mm -hmm. Now I wanna just pause on that not good enough point for a moment. We cannot forget that we as humans, we have architect we are the architects of our sports we are the architect of all of these exercises that aren't necessarily naturally occurring in the real world yeah. right when we look at the hip thrust that is not necessarily a naturally occurring exercise out in the ether that, that is the real world and so why do i share that well when we created these sporting these sports we've created these movements there is no necessity, there's no survival necessity that we are good at these things. Yeah. So when we expose people to them in many cases, they can get good enough. And that's what the body is great at, doing as much as needed, no more, no less. And so coaches oftentimes have to step in and brighten. Literally, I, I use the word brighten, like flashing a light on something, an information source that this person can use to move better i.e. when my son keeps falling off his bike because he's not noticing the handlebars, what do I want him to notice more of? The handlebars. And so me as a coach, I can go ahead and give him a cue and say, hey, keep your handlebars quiet as you're speeding up to catch your sister. Instantly, you call it a cue, 
but what he perceives as new information that -hmm. helps him solve the problem. He just got the puzzle piece he was missing. Okay, so drum roll now. What are the principles of coaching? Well, attention drives learning. How do we influence attention? What did I say earlier? Verbally and non-verbally. What does that actually relate to? When I use a verbal cue, I influence the perceiver. I influence how they take their spotlight and look at the world. When I tell someone when I'm teaching them to sprint, push the ground away as explosively as possible, I'm asking them to look for information through their extension. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking them to think about their extension, though that's the difference. I'm asking them to perceive the environment through hip extension by saying, focus on explosively pushing off the ground. If I say, let's say it's a frontside mechanics issue, focus on driving your knee forward as if to shatter a pane of glass. I'm asking them to perceive their env- environment through an emphasis of that forward action. Yeah. It then implies that they will gain more information around their frontside mechanics without necessarily having to think about it in the same way that I don't have to think about my elbow extension when I try to reach for a glass. Mm-hmm. I just focus on the glass itself. And so what we can do is we use verbal cues to influence the way the perceiver perceives. But on the flip side, what can I do? I can make a change in the environment. If I have an individual that isn't seeing gaps when they change direction in open field, maybe I start by bringing them back into a one-on-one scenario where now it is absolutely evident they have half the field to the left of the person and half the field to the right of the person. Now I see those gaps. Mm -hmm. And what I can do is now go one-on-two. The gaps become smaller, but now I've primed you, I've sensitized you to be able to see them. And so in that instance, rather than having to give a lot of cues, I just actually change the physical environment, tapping into the fact that our brains are brilliant change detectors, and the environment draws my attention in to the right things. Mm-hmm. And we typically call that environmental constraints because I'm constraining changing something. And so in summary, you have learning. That's our North Star principle. Attention is what drives it. How do we manipulate it? Verbally, through our cues. Non-verbally or environmentally, through our constraints. Is one method better than the other? No, because they're both always at play. They're both already naturally occurring. Mm -hmm. It's simply as a coach, how do I augment one or augment the other to help reveal or guide the athlete towards an information source, a solution they had not been perceiving? That's awesome. Uh, there's so much in there that I want to unpack. Uh, well, that's motor learning degree in about a 15 minute riff there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because you talked about the perception, you know, when you're climbing stairs, the stairs teach you how to climb stairs, right? Your body figures out the solution because of the constraint of the environment that's in front of you. Uh, same thing, as you said, when you're riding a bike, when you're doing all those different things. So, I've never actually thought of it's. It's funny. I've never thought of the environment quite like that. Like I've never thought of a, a, a stairs as teaching me how to climb stairs, uh, which is really interesting because I think like that all the time. That we so behind like kind of backstory. My wife works as a teacher primarily in kindergarten, grade one, grade two, and we have talked a lot about 
motor development and the problems with kids these days, uh, specifically, I don't know if it's the same over in Europe, so I can't speak to that, but specifically in North America, sitting all the time and uh, at school, there's less time to be outside. There's less risky play. There's all of that. And so we've talked a lot about not constraining the environment for them and allowing them their bodies and their brains to figure out solutions to problems on their own, specifically about around surrounding motor learning and, um, and brain development. So it's really interesting when you're talking about that, I'm like, Oh man, yeah, that stairs definitely taught me how to, how to climb. Right. And now next time I'm going to trip upstairs or trip on a sidewalk, I'm going to think, man, I did not perceive my environment. They just taught me to pay more attention. Um, That's it. So I want to talk about, I want, I want to leave the verbal to the, the second for, for part number two, but I, I want to talk a little bit about the constraining of the environment because I love the idea. Like if you're not getting what you want out of a client that you have, constraining the environment is a great way. Like one of the tools that a trainer and a strength coach has in order to help that, that client, that athlete learn better. So if you were teaching a new strength and conditioning coach, a new personal trainer, and you were trying to give them some advice as to how to develop constraints, because I think that's the hardest thing for a trainer is figuring out what to like, what do I constrain, right? If I've got a client, as you said, trying to learn something that isn't actually all that natural for us to do. Yep, how yep, do yep. I how do I constrain that environment? So I love the image that you gave about the field and breaking it apart, making it real easy, and then slowly scaffolding. So can you just talk a little bit about constraints and scaffolding for new trainers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big questions here, Adam. Big questions. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to uh, impart some brevity on this one. So again, w- when we look at constraints. The first thing that we have to recognize before we even attempt to deploy them is what information do we need to be able to effectively select a good constraint? Mm-hmm. Like, because that's kind of what you're after here is what information do I need as a coach to increase the odds that I can constrain this activity in such a way to improve the movement? And so mm-hmm. let, let's, let's operationally try to define constraints here. So uh, a constraint is any change to, in this case, the task or the environment that increases the odds of the movement pattern you want to see and decreases the odds of the movement pattern you don't want to see by giving the athlete more information to self-correct. Okay, so let's use a very rudimentary example, but one that most people can relate to. If the knees are caving in all the time on a squat, what we do is we put a mini band around the knees. Now, at first glance to to the uneducated eye, that might seem to be the complete opposite thing of what you want to do because the band is physically pulling them into that poor inward knee position. Mm -hmm. But a phrase that is oftentimes used, and I like it, is you are feeding the error. Well, what are you feeding the error? Well, you're you're literally feeding the error sensory information. You're giving the error more information, which means to say, if I have more information about an error, I'm more likely to self-correct. 
I'm mm -hmm. more likely to improve it. Obviously, if I'm squatting and my knees are caving in and I'm not changing, here's the key. I'm not sensing it's a problem. Yeah. Like, let's, let's marinate on that point for a second. The way your athlete or client moves naturally is the way their body is perceiving it is the best way to move for them. Yeah. And so we can't take that away from them. And thus, we have to take that decision to try to change someone's movement quite seriously. And I think too often we're trying to get everyone's movement to look the exact same. Yeah. Now that's a whole nother conversation, <laughs> but hear it now. And I'm not the first nor the last to say it. There is no such thing as perfect form. Yeah. There is no such thing as perfect form. There is an optimized form for a given individual for a given movement. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is get them in that bandwidth. Okay. Yeah. And so we do this then by making a physical change to the environment that implicitly tacitly makes the mistake obvious such that you want to change on your own. They might not know why they want to change, but when that mini band is pulling your knees in, it doesn't feel right. You're going to push your knees out. Yeah. And the same way if you trip on that first step, when you're walking upstairs, you rest assured you're going to be lifting those legs a little bit higher when you take the remainder of those steps. And yeah. so this is what we say, the environment does the talking and the athlete does the walking is kind of how I like to phrase this. Yeah. And so what now goes into building good constraints? Um, step number one is we're going to dip into our first category, knowledge of what. You need to be pretty switched on to the knowledge of what they need to do. That means you need to understand the biomechanics. You need to understand the bandwidth of optimal movement you are looking to promote and recognize how far out of that bandwidth they are. At the same time, you are trying to recognize mechanistically why. Why are they outside of that bandwidth? So for example, if I'm watching someone sprint with what appears to be a shortened gait, that means they don't look like they're getting as much hip flexion as I think they need. They're also not getting as much hip extension as I think they need, mm -hmm. giving us that kind of road runner fast leg action. Now I have a problem because they both flex and extend their hips simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And I can't ask them to think about both of those things at the same time. That's like patting your head and rubbing your tummy. So I'm going to have to make a bet here. I'm going to have to make a bet. And so that bet is, do I feel the source of the problem is in them not focused on driving forward enough or not driving back enough? Now that's a pretty easy problem to solve. I, I might early on try a cue, a verbal cue for both, and see which one works better. Mm -hmm. And that can help me start to solve this. So that's step number one. Do I understand the biomechanics? And do I understand the source of the issue? Recognizing that that source of the issue, the problem, so to speak, could also have symptoms that are echoing throughout the body, right? So oftentimes we look at the knee going in as the problem at the knee. No, it's not at the knee, it's at the hip. Mm -hmm. Right. So we have to make sure we're not chasing shadows. And so that's number one related to that point, though. And I, and I refer to this as the three P performance model in my book. This is exactly what I'm going through as we speak here. I have to recognize, are there any physical limitations to them performing this movement? Are there any physical handbrakes? Well, what do you mean by that, Nick? Well, things like mobility, stability, strength, power. Are any of these physical assets that the movement requires, are they limiting factors? Because if they are, no amount of constraining or cueing 
is going to suddenly fix coordination mm -hmm. if the rate limiting issue is left hip mobility. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean I stop coaching them all of a sudden. It simply means if I want to make the coordination change that I desire, then I'm going to need to be targeting those physical handbrakes in the weight room alongside my coaching of those movements, let's say out on the field. Mm -hmm. And so let's then assume for a moment, you understand the physical limiters, you understand the biomechanics, you identified the problems from the symptoms, and you're very clear now on what you need to coach. The next question then becomes is, okay, what can I change in the environment to automatically promote that technical change? And so let's say, for example, let's go back to my sprinting example. We have identified that they, they are not aggressive enough in their forward knee drive. They're, not, they're literally not flexing their hip enough when they are sprinting forward. The next question I must ask myself is, what can I change in the physical task or environment that will fundamentally and automatically force them to drive that knee forward? Now, let's go through a couple examples. I could have them race somebody where on the race, they're the chaser. Mm -hmm. Ah, Nick, why are you having them chase? I'm having them chase so their energy is more forward towards the person that they're trying to pursue. And that implies the possibility of maybe greater forward leg action. That's one example. I could use something like tape on the ground that's set up at specific distances that relates to a certain speed. And I could tell them, I want you to focus on exploding over those pieces of tape, not step on the tape, explode over those pieces of tape. Again, because the tape is forward in the visual field, it's gonna increase in affordance of driving forward, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, I might get better push as well, but that constraint operates at a visual level as does uh, the chasing of the person. What else might I do? I could use stairs or a hill. By the very nature of the stairs, Adam, that you earlier tripped on, right? I could use those stairs again visually as well as structurally to force and promote more forward leg drive mm -hmm. in the same way that a hill might. Now, we, we must pause here because we're at a critical junction. We've gone through, you need to know what to coach. Then when it comes to the constraint, you're trying to promote the change and minimize the aberrant movement behavior. We've gone through an example of chasing tape on the ground stairs in a hill. Now, for some people, they should pause this and say, okay, hold on. Is sprinting up stairs and sprinting up a hill gonna transfer to the activity I'm really interested in, which is them sprinting on flat ground? If you didn't ask yourself that question, <laughs> you should, and you need to. And this is the final thing that I wanna say. Very often, Adam, people confuse constraints with drills. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? Well, if the movement I'm trying to improve is sprinting, and then you say, okay, I need better knee drive. Ah, I'm going to have them do a lot of skipping patterns that force their knees to go higher. Is that skipping drill a constraint-based drill for sprinting? No, it is not. Well, why is it not? When we talk about improving a movement, if you want to know what learning is, you get better at what you practice. Mm -hmm. Like I cannot stress that point enough. There's no magical pixie dust that takes your skip and converts it into better forward horizontal motion in a sprint. It doesn't work like that. 
Are there physical benefits from skipping? And I'm just using one example. Yes, there are. Yeah. But is the coordination one-to-one the same? Does it have a ton of overlap with horizontal sprinting? Uh, no, it does not. Because the force direction is completely vertical. Mm-hmm. The timing is far slower. And the rhythm is a completely different song on the radio. And so we have to start to recognize that when we apply constraints as they are intended, they are applied to the movement in the authentic movement context. This is so central because that's the movement I'm trying to learn. Mm -hmm. Anything that is a drill then, I will argue for if it provides some physical benefit. And it's that physical benefit that transfers, not necessarily the coordination, the technical skill one-to-one. Yeah. So let's go back then to the stairs and the hill. Are they constraints? Yes. Why? Because my intention up the stairs and my intention up the hill, one-to-one overlaps with my intention of going hard forward. Mm-hmm. It's the environment that changes my technique. And so here's the key. When I use a constraint, I want tremendous overlap between the outcome task, sprinting, and the constraint task. If there's not a lot of overlap, right? So there's there's minimal overlap if it's sprinting and a skipping drill, yeah. but there's quite a bit of overlap if it's sprinting and a hill sprint, mm-hmm. right? So now we're getting into what could be a far longer conversation around nuance, but I'm going to pause it there. And those should give people a pathway to using better constraints, but notably the things that they need to reflect on to own it. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think that's awesome. Uh, a lot of new trainers that I've worked with, because I've much like you early on in your career, you were working with a lot of certifications, uh, taking them and also coaching new trainers and strength coaches through them. And one of the biggest things I see is people always want, okay, how do I fix this? And it's different for pretty much every single client you ever see. It's a little bit different. And so having the capacity to utilize something like constraints, environmental constraints within a gym or, uh, you know, a small studio or even just out on a, on a field or a track when you're working with either track athletes or, or field athletes, having the ability to think on your feet and constrain the environment in a way that is best going to help that athlete or that client is what they need to do. They don't need a list of different constraints. They need the principles in order to be able to create themselves. So I I think what you just stated was fantastic because I think that's going to actually help me as well develop better constraints for my own clients um, when I'm working with them. So Adam, let's just say one final thing about them. Yeah. One of the constraints are very popular and I think justifiably so, is because they tap into what we talked about earlier as natural learning. Mm-hmm. And that if I'm just changing the environment, right, I'm changing what is being perceived, that is a very natural information source. I'm used to picking up information in my environment and implicitly using that information to make a change. Well, Nick, what do you mean implicitly? What I mean by that is I'm able to make a change but I don't necessarily know what went into the change. Mm-hmm. So i.e. you're riding the bike one day, you're falling off. And then a few days later, you're not falling off. Adam, what did you do to learn to ride the bike? Uh, I rode the bike. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what we mean by implicit learning. If we put you in a biomechanics lab, we could say things like, well, Adam has less body sway, more even push through the pedals, but that's all operating under the bonnet as, as we say over here in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so the key thing is if we use the environment again, to do the teaching where we can, 
then it allows the person to learn without building up all of these steps in their mind. Well, why is that important? Well, we all know the risk of overthinking. We yeah. all are familiar with phrases like paralysis by analysis. And those, unfortunately, are born out of the other strategy of an ineffective or inappropriate application of verbal coaching. Mm -hmm. And as we'll soon talk about, it's not that verbal coaching is ineffective, but it can be used to ineffective ends if we don't know how to apply it correctly. And so that's why if constraints are your first port of call and you can get a change, you're, you're, you're on solid ground that that change is going to be permanent and less likely to be interfered with by inappropriate focus or overthinking. Yeah. And, and I think just to kind of finish the topic is even when you're looking at, you know, school and you're trying to teach a student allowing them to come to the solution and figure it out for themselves, just providing them with a little bit of guidance helps them learn the concept. If you give them the answer, it doesn't like, or walk them directly through every single thing that they have to do. They don't really learn that process near as well. So I think, you know, what you're saying with regards to the motor learning side as well is if their body is able to figure it out on their own without you having to guide them through by giving them a whole bunch of cues, not to say once again, that verbal cues are bad, that allows them to learn it and it to stick. Um, yes. And you can be more confident with that. Yeah, for sure. So I think this is a great place because part number two, I want to get all into the verbal side of coaching. So talk a little bit about that and specifically about the, the use of analogies and metaphors, because I know from listening to a few of the podcasts that you've done and, and looking through the book, that's a big piece to helping athletes and clients really understand the application of what you're talking about and then apply it to their, or like make it relevant for them, which I think is a big thing for helping trainers and other coaches really know how to coach better. So we'll pick that up in part number two. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.